Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canelli and welcome back to Before the Lights podcast. The show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. He has over 10 studio albums and has worked with the likes of Boss Gags, Elton John, Amy Grant, Barry Manilow, Donna Summer, Nancy Wilson, Neil Diamond, among many others. He's won multiple Grammy Awards for his songwriting. He's a singer, musician, arranger, and a producer. He formed the band Sons of Champlin in 1965, which still performs today. He was a member of the group Chicago for 28 years and is the CEO of a very important group called CRS, which stands for Can't Remember Shit. Please welcome to the show, Bill Champlin. Bill, how are you? You know, the only thing with those with those credits of, of doing all the groups I work with, I never got to do a Tiny Tim record. I mean, that would have been, <laughs> that would have opened up the whole world, you know? That would have expanded your horizons drastically. You might be old enough. You remember Mrs. Miller? A little bit. Yeah, they put out an album. It was a, it was a, it was a joke album, it was like a pet rock. You know what I mean? But I was driving through Texas. I mean, it had to be, got over 50 years ago. And there was a local radio station that says, come on out Saturday to the, to the football or the baseball stadium where we're going to go for the Mrs. Miller album throw. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good move. I like that. They'll be, they'll be doing that with mine quick enough. You know what I mean? Hey, everybody. Join the all-new members area on my Before the Lights podcast website. The Salute Chin Chin Package includes access to the extra five shout out on a future show, some bonus content. The zoom calls are going to be starting again soon. Also, we're going to have some rewards for you. Get the brand new limited edition poker chip. It looks absolutely fantastic. You're going to get 10% off all merch as well. And your name added to the show notes to join for only seven 99 a month. Go to beforethelightspod.com slash support. That's beforethelightspod.com slash support. Born in Oakland, California, your grandparents, your mother and sister were all singers. But Bill, did it start for you as a child on the piano after getting lessons at age four? Yeah. And as anybody asked me, should I, should I learn to play guitar or should I, what should I do? You know, and I always <laughs> just say, learn piano first and all the rest comes real easy. You know, because you learn basically to play piano, you kind of got to learn a certain level of theory to make it work. And then you just apply all that that you learned on the piano to the guitar. Then all you really need is calluses and and get that one under your hands, you know. For the guitar, was the inspiration then from Elvis Presley? Probably so. You know, I, I wasn't getting much of a sound out of a piece of rope on a broomstick. So I figured I had to learn how to play. <laughs> and at first I, I tried it. And I went, nah, this ain't so much fun. Cause I had a guitar that had strings in a whole other zip code than the neck. You know, I just couldn't get push them down far enough. Cheap guitars have a way of doing that. So, and later on I started listening to like, you know, God, Freddie King and, you know, different casts. I mean, Albert King probably did more to really put me, put me in the ball game than anybody. And I think for rhythm guitar, I always look up to Steve Cropper mm. from Booker T and the MGs and all the records he produced for Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and Wilson Pickett and all the whole thing. His rhythm guitar parts are always just, you know, brilliant ignorance. Just so cool. <laughs> it's just the coolest stuff. But uh, and he's a good friend. He's a really good guy. So anyway. The band The Opposite Six, while you were at 
Tamil Pius High School in Mill Valley, California. This turned into Sons of Champlin. How did you come up with the name Sons of Champlin? Oh, you don't even want to know. <laughs> the stupidest rock and roll band name in the history of the world. Why is it? And we still play gigs. We just, we just did a couple of week, couple of weekends ago. We did uh, Sacramento, Marin County, and uh, and Oakland. So we still play sometimes. Not that often because they're kind of based out of Northern California. And some of the players, me and the, and the drummer, Alan Hertz, and the guitar player, live down here in L.A. And it was just just becoming harder and harder to make that 375-mile drive. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, Highway 5. The, the definition of boring. <laughs> <laughs> when you studied music in college, is it true that a professor encourage you to drop out and pursue music on a professional level for a numerous reasons a guy named uh what was his name what was his name larry what was his i forgot his name i forget a lot like i say crs i'm the <laughs> CRS. I'm founding member but uh uh yeah he's uh he just uh he just said uh snyder larry snyder who was the head of the theory department at uh college of marin or we like to refer to it as marin institute of Tom Foolery. But uh, so uh, Larry just always said, uh, I mean, he took us into a practice hall. I said, you know, I've seen you guys' band. You guys, if you, if you, you know, yeah, you can go get a master's. You, I mean, you're all talented musicians. You got to bear down a little bit and not be drunk in class. You know, that's helpful. But other than that, he said, you know, you're all great musicians. He said, at this, at this stage, not now, but then at this stage, everybody who gets a master's gets a teacher's turns around and starts teaching everybody else, teaching other people to get a master's and a teacher's. He says, and it's worked into this sort of vicious circle in academia. You don't want to do that. I've heard your band. You're on the last page of the book that, that we're studying and we're on page seven. You're doing really, really cool music. I suggest you just go after it. Mm. And quit bothering me, probably. <laughs> and say it quite that way, but I, I kind of dug there was a little there was a it was a two point thing because we were relative, you know, we would do, you know that kind of thing and end up with <laughs> and, you know, we'd we get an A and then whoops. <laughs> when did you start writing music? I think I wrote my first song when I was about fourteen or fifteen. It was a blues. And then in 1977, at 30 years old, you moved to L.A. What was the music scene like in L.A. at that time? Well, you know, the music scene had been slamming. You know, you had, you had Mamas and Papas and Sonny and Cher, Jan and Dean and Beach Boys, all that kind of stuff had already been kind of established. But there was a whole new world of cats really kind of building a whole new thing. And it kind of kind of came out of Steely Dan in a lot of ways because mm. Steely had to, had this thing where they had kind of straight ahead, really great sound and pop songs, but music kind of took them this way and they, they followed it rather than saying, no, I want to stay with what's working. They just went, let's go with where it tells us it wants, we want to be. And a lot of people, especially a lot of the session cats around could do that. And they understood that most of them probably had a certain level of jazz training, at least, you know, Jay Graydon's a, a crazy bebop. Uh, guitar player. Uh, Greg Matheson's a great bebop piano player, but he's also a great R&B producer, arranger, and songwriter. I write a lot of stuff with Greg. He's one of my favorite musicians, you know. As a producer, it's funny. I mean, he's so great. 
is such a good musician and could go anywhere with it. But the songs that he was, that he, the hits that he really got were Hey Mickey and Whip It. <laughs> he just happened <laughs> to get those, get those, you know, those projects. And those are the ones he, that he got really big success, studio success that people don't realize. This is a monster musician so far ahead of anything that, that was on either of those records, you know, mm-hmm. but, it, you know, it was cool. He was working with uh, Trevor Lawrence and Trevor was, was it Trevor? I forgot. I mean, it might be. CRS. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Another, yeah. Right. Here we go. You, you'll, you'll see a lot of that as the day goes by. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, and I just sort of fell into the middle of this. I was kind of sort of known because of the sons and, um, and uh, and uh, guys, when I kind of hit town, certain level of cats that I became really good friends with, I'd already worked with David Foster uh, when he was really a session player and a string arranger. Keith Olsen was producing the Circle Filled with Love album for the Suns. He says, I think you need strings on a couple of these things. It'd be really lush and nice. I know a guy. So who do you get? Uh, who are we going to get? You know, and I popped up a handful of names of people that were known. He says, there's this new guy in town. It's really good. David Foster. And the minute we met, we just started, we just became fast friends and started working together, writing together, you know, and he just, David, I remember I said, I want to have David Foster produce my album. I said, he's just, he's just a session piano player. He'll never be a producer. Oh. I said, you're, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm using him, which may be one of the reasons why the record didn't go. Cause they had an idea. Let's get this other guy who's had a lot of hits. I said, well, give this guy a shot. Give him a chance. Mm-hmm. Cause this other guy would hire somebody like David Foster to do the work. All uh, David Page on the boss guys. So degrees record, David really did a lot of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't even remember who produced it. Uh, Joe, I forget, another one, yeah, another one down the drain. <laughs> I never worked with the guy, but but Foster turned out to be just a, an amazing, uh, you know, primal force in the world of music. Anyway, yes. When you were with the group, the Rhythm Dukes, who all did you guys open for at that time? I don't even remember. The Dukes was just—I mean, I was with those guys for four or five months, maybe. I'm not a really long time. I moved to Santa Bar- Santa Cruz for a little while they were down there. So I kind of played with them. I was, I was kind of, kind of needed to let the sons rest for a while so I could maybe change rhythm sections. Cause I was really unhappy with where that was going. They're great players, but they weren't playing my music that well. You know, it's, you know, there's a difference between a, a great, you know, uh, chops drummer and a guy with a groove, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and I couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't get what I wanted to get out of what we had. So I left. We put it back together later on, but with different, different rhythm sessions. When you did extensive studio session work, you've appeared on hundreds of recordings in the seventies and eighties. The national association of recording arts and sciences awarded you the MVP for male background vocalist in 1980. You've done Mm -hmm. so many bill. Can you name just a couple of these songs that maybe our listeners have probably heard on the radio before? Well, you know, I was, I think it was actually in the, it could have been in the nineties. Late 80s, we did uh, actually Jason Sheff, who who kind of replaced Peter Cetera as, as a high, higher singer in Chicago. We went and did a session for Jay Graydon, and he was producing Kenny Rogers and uh, uh, 20 years ago. Remember the song 20 years ago that Kenny put out? Anyway, anyway neither here nor there. So, you know, we got to the chorus, and Jay and I, Jason and I pretty much sang the chorus <laughs> of that. And, I, you know, I worked with Nancy Wilson, a jazz singer. 
who just she just passed away a little while ago. She was insanely great, one unbelievable. Dionne Warwick, uh, you know, I did some I did some Boz a couple one Boz Skaggs record it was me and David Lasley and Luther Vandross singing backgrounds on most of them. So uh, not not Silk Degrees. What am I talking about? Uh, what's the name of it? Once again, lost it again. CRS. Yeah, yeah. Were you on um, Isn't She Lovely with Stevie Wonder? Were you on that tune? Not not with Stevie, but I did a version of it on a Lee Rock, Lee Rittenhour album mm. that uh, it got a lot of it got a lot of fo- a lot of uh, notice, including from Stevie Wonder. Stevie tried to call up the record company that I was signed to with uh, with the Sons and tried to get an okay for them to release for Lee to release mine as a single and. Uh, the uh, uh, the the head of the record label said no, not not going to happen. I got I got a single that's going to be a giant with the Suns, and it never did anything. So, uh, right, I was right around the time I went to my lawyer's office. And I said, okay, Bob, I want out of my publishing deal. I want out of my uh, uh, my record deal. I want out of my band. We'll talk about my marriage in a little while, but for, you know all of these things. And I want out of the whole thing. And uh, and he says. Well, he went over and got two uh, legal pads and pencils and poured two, got <laughs> put ice in two glasses, filled it with scotch, sat down and said, we're going to be here for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I, you know, when that all happened, I just, I just moved down, I moved south and went, uh, you know, that was in what, 77. I moved to LA in uh, August, maybe mm. October, August, somewhere in there. Did you also do some work with Michael McDonald on some background vocals as well? Oh, tons of it. Yeah, Michael and me and Bobby Kimball, who was the, the tenor with Toto at the time, did uh, we all we did all the vocals on this one song on uh, Memphis Horns album. And it was a song that was a Sun song that I had been playing for years and years. So I knew the voicings. <laughs> I knew how to make it work. And we ended up doing all kinds of stuff. We did demos. We did all kinds of things. We did a we did a actually Michael and I just the two of us did a background vocal on Carol Bayer Sager's record. Uh, which ended up the, the, you know, it went on a record, but she uses that as a demo to sell it to Michael Jackson. And it was on off the wall. You know, it's the falling in love and making me high. It's the being in love that make me try, try, try. That thing. Michael and I pretty much came up with the parts that they went ahead and used on Michael Jackson. Not the ones we sang, but the parts. In 79, you did some background vocals on the LP Nine Lives for Ario Speedwagon. Listeners, mm-hmm. a couple songs in that record are Only the Strong Survive and Back on the Road Again. Bill, that album seemed like that was the last album that Ario Speedwagon really had that rock edge sound to it as well. Well, Ario Speedwagon was managed by John Barrett, who was, I was also managed by. My, not, my, not with Chicago, but with my solo projects. And uh, John's sweet guys. I think he manages Journey right now, the last I heard. But uh, you never know a Journey. They seem to change uh, change personnel <laughs> at the drop of a hat at some level. But uh, they're, uh, uh, he was managing REO Speedwagon also. And Tom Kelly, who I'd done a lot of vocal dates with, was just starting to get his really dig in his heels as a writer. He's kicking pretty hard. And uh, he ended up writing kind of two colors for with uh, Cindy Lauper wrote some, wrote some big, I get so emotional, but a handful of handful of great records. Tom's a really great hit. Tom and his, his partner have written some monsters. So he wrote a couple tunes, for, you know, for them and said, Hey man, you want to come do some background? I did it. It was, just, I, it was one of those ones. I was so busy that week. I went and knocked it off and went home. I don't even remember. 
I barely remember the date. In 1980, you won a Grammy Award for the best R&B song, co-writing After the Love is Gone with Jay Graydon and David Foster. It was performed by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Was this song anything that you thought about possibly recording yourself before oh, they we, got it? We wrote it. We wrote it for my album. Oh, okay. Then how did yeah, they get I mean, it? We were just finishing up the single album, and David was catching a gig as a piano player, just a session guy for Maurice White for an Earth, Wind, and Fire record. I think he was playing on September. And, you know, they were rolling the tape back. You can't do that. Pro Tools, you just go start. Yeah. <laughs> they were rolling the tape back, so there's always a little bit of extra time, and David started just playing the song. And Maurice came, you know, he came walking into the studio, walked up and said, what is that? He said, it's a tune where we've written for Bill's album. Bill, Bill Champlin. Oh, cool. Uh, you want to hear a cassette? He says, yeah, we'll take a break. Put the band on in 10 minutes. And he, he, David played what I had recorded, played it for Maurice. He says, if Bill will agree to not release it, we'll cut it. And I agreed to it. You know, then, he, then David said, well, if you got some more time, I'll play you the rest of Bill's album. And he said, he brought the whole band in and says, you're not going to believe it. This guy's white. <laughs> <laughs> not Maurice White or, or Freddie White or Verdine White, but this guy's a white guy. And everybody's like, whoa. And, and I think that's kind of what got his attention. He wanted three more songs or two, two or three more songs from that with the same deal. If I would not do it from my record, it would have taken three or four songs from my record, which was almost done. And I just went, nah, I'm going to pass on those three. That was another what I like to refer to as a Suzanne Summers uh, uh, career move. <laughs> I should have just given, you want the whole record? You got it. We, we'll just sit down and write another one tomorrow, which yeah. we could do. You know. So anyway, like that, you know, so you look back and you go, I should have done, I should have, I could have, I didn't, you know, I always said, Hey, the, the sons were, the sons were great. Every time, they, every time opportunity knocked, we answered the phone. Bill, how was it performing that song with on the Chicago Earth, Wind and Fire tours in 04 and 05 with them? It was fun. You know, I didn't do it every night, but I did it. I did it, you know, probably half the time. Sometimes they just didn't want to deal with it and have Philip sing it. But uh, that was a, that was a musically, I think that was a pretty good tour in a lot of ways, especially when both bands played together. Because mm -hmm. at that point in the game, we had Verdine playing through a real amplifier. All of our stuff was all through through, uh, you know, I think Jason Chef was playing bass through a pod, like a little thing just into this PA system, into into the either cans or in-ears or monitors or whatever you're using. And uh, uh, and once Verdine got up there, then we had him through, he had like three bass speakers kind of hidden around the stage and it's just pushing air like crazy. He's such a great bass player. I love his bass playing, you know. Verdine invented the bass style to where the exit of the note is as important as the entrance. So he would close the note in time and leave this air for the rest of the track to just breathe. It was just a, a style that he pretty much invented. Everybody went, whoa, whatever this is, it's working like a champ, you know. And Verdine's a fun guy. He's a cool dude. In 83, you won another Grammy Award for a best R&B song, Turn Your Love Around, which was performed by George Benson, Co-wrote it with Jay Graydon and Steve Lukather from Toto. Was this another one of your songs as well that got taken by no, George? Th this was written for George Benson. Jay and, and Steve had the track, not the track, but had the, the progression already there and had pretty much had the the melodies. Uh, you know, loose melodies. They didn't have melody on the bridge, but which I came up with, but but it was pretty much a lyric gig, you know. So I wrote the lyrics. 
And then, uh, and then me and uh, Carmen Twilley and Vinette Gloud, who the, the group that I usually did a lot of sessions with, and, and some of them really great, went in and did the background vocals. And I listened back to it. I said, it's just not tight enough. Jay, let me do these choruses, just stacking them myself. And I went and stacked them myself. And some of the other stuff that Nettie and Vinette, uh, or Carmen and Nettie and I had done, we, we kept on the record. But the, the choruses were, turn your love around. You know, put, kind of put that thing into the ball game. And uh, we did a demo of it. Jay says, hey, just do it your own way. <laughs> George said, ah, the way Bill's doing is fine. I'll just sing that. <laughs> He's a really good guy. And it's, you know, if he could only play the guitar. <laughs> Forget it. Like George Benson is probably the best, best bebop guitar player ever. You know, I'm talking ever. I have that tune on a 45 vinyl that I still play this to this day. Oh, great. You haven't <laughs> taken it to the annual Frisbee contest. No, yet, no, I love the tune. I love the tune. In 78, the day after Chicago guitarist Terry Kath died, who was the founding member of the band, they reached out to you to audition, but you declined. Why did you decline at that time? I got a call from the from the manager uh, of uh, or soon to be full tilt manager, but I think he was like a co-manager of Chicago at the time after Terry died. And they all kind of knew they were going to keep going in some form or another. So I got the call. What happened was, is I, what I understood about the call, it was the guitar chair. And yes, I do play the guitar. Yes, I can solo once, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I, I, it was just too big a pair of shoes for me to fit in. I could sing all the stuff. It'd be fine. And then a couple of years later, so they ended up running through a bunch of different people, Carmen Grillo included, who's also my, one of my oldest and dearest friends and great guitar player. Uh, Donnie Dacus somehow ended up getting the gig and he's a good guy. He's a good guitar player, good singer too. And, but somehow that kind of packed, that didn't work for him after a while. And at some point they were, I think they got off of, they got off of, uh, what do you call it? Uh, they got off of the record of CBS or Sony or Columbia or whatever they were, they got off of that. And then they were, they were kind of without a deal and they, and their manager said, well, let's, let's make an album. And then we can, that way we can really sell it to somebody. So they did. And I remember uh, Danny Serafin and I had, we had, first of all, he was producing something with Peter Cetera or not with Peter, but with a guy named Angelo, great singer. And I worked with Angelo three years before on a record in, in uh, Berkeley uh, at uh, Fantasy Studios up there. And uh, so uh, what happened was is that uh, Danny was producing this this thing and, and Angelo called me a couple of days before. He said, can you come over and do backgrounds? I don't really have any money. It would just be, you know, just be friends and family program, you know. And I, and I had just been working on Written Hours album and I'd been up, at, up late at night singing my singing like crazy. And had a hard time getting home because it was just insane fog. You know, it was like San Francisco, but here we were in L.A. And so foggy, I couldn't see three feet in front of me. So I didn't get home till about four or five in the morning. He called me around nine and said, could you do this? And I, and I just kind of jived him a little bit. I said, well, you know, I got a really bad cold. I'm not really singing very well. He said, you know, Peter Cetera said the same thing, but he's going to do it. And I said, well, if he's going to do it, I'm going to do it. So we got together. We very quietly worked out some parts of one song in the booth and then went out to the, to the microphone and cranked them, you know, and, uh, Danny Serafin, who was producing it and the drummer in Chicago just went him and the engineer, just their jaws dropped. He said, Whoa, that's a blend. There's a blend there. There's something going on here. 
So next thing I know, Danny's calling. I wrote a song with him. And after that, after that happened, we'd kind of put a, put a thing together. He called me and says, what do you think of David Foster as a producer? I says, I think David's probably the perfect producer for you guys, but I've heard the material that you're planning on recording. You, you really should just throw it away and start over with David because he's a great writer and a great co-writer, which had ended up happening. So we ended up with Chicago 16. So there's the one song that they did keep was the one that Danny and I told them. And uh, so the, the band was in a session cutting it. Everybody was there. I don't think they had, I don't think Peter was there, but everybody else was there. And uh, so we cut it without, without bass. And, and David had me play the big piano and he was playing Rhodes. And, uh, and it just, a song called Sonny Think Twice that uh, Danny and I wrote. So that all happened. And, and I kind of met all the guys with some serious senses of humor going on there. You know what I mean? <laughs> and we ended up having a ball. And a couple of days later, Danny called and said, man, we want you in the band. I said, man, I don't do sideman gigs. It's just not, it's not what I'm, you know, I'm, I got a solo album coming out any minute here. I just don't do sideman stuff. And he said, we're not talking about sideman. We're talking about full principal member, you know? And I said, well, I, I, what, what do you see me doing? So well, we need you to sing some of Terry's stuff, like make me smile. And I went, ah, that's cool. I like that tune. Uh, Color my world. I said, well, I got to get back to you. I got to think about this for a while. Cause I don't really particularly like the song, but neither here nor there. It ended up happening. So I ended up in that band. I figured I'd give it five years and I did it. I gave it 28. <laughs> yeah. Wow. When you did the lead vocals for look away and I don't want to, love without your love or I don't want to live without your love. I don't want to love without your live. You know, <laughs> you know, I like turning the, turning the, uh, the titles around. I mean, uh, Richard Marks was talking about hard to say, I'm sorry. And he, he got marble mouth. He went, sorry to say I'm hard. <laughs> and that's, that's been, yeah, Richard went, whoops. <laughs> he didn't even, I didn't even try for that. You know, it's pretty funny. Did you write these two songs as well, Bill, or did you just do vocals? Both of them were uh, Diane Warren songs. And at the time, the, the band was, you know, we were kind of in another little bit of a slump. The, the Foster era had kind of petered itself out. They needed something else with Chicago 19. Now, the management company worked with, uh, they were working with Hart and Ron Nevison, who's a really great guy, he's a good hang, uh, who's a well-known producer, had produced the Hart, the Hart record, you know. I, why can't I get you alone? And some of the great things he did a lot of starship stuff too. And uh, so they brought in Ron and they said, well, Ron, you know, they played this song, which Ron had kind of buttonholed and it's, a, and it's look away. It's a Diana Warren song. And, uh, and uh, so they said, well, we've got to get it up in the tenor range. And Ron just turned around and said, no, I want that guy to sing it. And most of the time, even the guys just weren't used to the fact that I was there. So they said, well, it's going to either be Peter or, or, you know, when Peter was there. So he's going to either be Peter and Bobby or, or Robert and uh, or Jason and, or Robert. And Nevison went, uh-uh, I want that guy to sing it. So, I mean, that was really the coolest thing he ever did. So I went and sang Look Away, sang another song called You're Not Alone, and another one called I Don't Want to Live Without Your Love. And Look Away was the most played uh, record of 1989. Wow. That was when radio, radio was really running the show. And then by the next year, hip-hop had come up, so you couldn't get a breaker unless you were rapping. Mm. It, it just kind of, it was so, you know, the, the, the business has a tendency to go, oh, this is happening. Blow everything off. Or let's go do everything of this, of this level. I was, at one point, I was signed for a solo deal during this time with Capitol Records. And uh, got a, had a whole thing going on, and they changed head, the head of A&R, brought in a guy from... England. Uh, I think Simon Potts was the guy's name. 
And he wanted to, to get rid of every, almost every artist they had and fill it up with uh, bands, you know, uh, your, your kind of YouTube copy bands and, you know, that sort of, uh, I don't know, English kind of thing. A lot of good grooves because of drum machines. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he almost, he, he, he suggested that they take Bonnie Raitt off the label. And she had Nick of Time out at that point. Wow. And, and the, the, the president of the company says, well, everybody else is fine. We're not letting her go. This record's starting to show signs of legs. And it turned out to be four Grammys or five Grammys yeah. for Bonnie. And that girl can sing Time, News, and Weather and make it work. Yep. Plus, she's one of the best slide players in the world. I think, I think people don't, she's such a good singer, people don't give her the credit for being the player that she is. She's a fantastic singer. She's, I saw her in a show just a couple of years back, and she did uh, Angel from Montgomery. And 3,500 people in the audience were in tears. She's just an amazing singer, one of my favorites. They almost let her go. Could you imagine her getting four Grammys at the, at the, at the Grammys? Hanging on a forum, going. By the way, I need a record deal. That would have been, been the end of it for Capital. I would have. I would have done it. I mean, they're. It would have been so embarrassing. It would mm-hmm. be worse than the pullout from Afghanistan. You know what I mean? Right. It would be an embarrassing thing. But luckily, the the president of the company had had his wits about him and made it work. You know, made him stay in. Chicago 16 goes platinum, and then Chicago 17 becomes another big popular album. Has a song yeah. "Hard Habit to Break," and it seemed like at that time, Bill. Chicago was just on a string of hit after hit after hit, and you guys were just rolling them. Well, I think with Chicago, they were kind of known as like this sort of home, they called it jazz rock, you know, a lot of horn based kind of stuff uh, with their thing. Plus, they had Terry Cap, uh, who happened to be Jimi Hendrix's favorite guitar player. And Terry was a monster player, and I think he was a great singer. You listen to Terry and then put on a, a Stone Temple Pilots record and listen to Scott uh, Whelan, it sounded a lot like Terry Cap. He sang a lot like Terry Cat. He was just, he just, uh, he was a one of a kind guy. I mean, really did great for them. So later on, at one point in the game, uh, they, they decided, let's do this one ballad and put it on the record. And it was a song that Peter wrote called If You Leave Me Now. That threw the whole thing into a whole other world. And then at that point in the game, all the record companies said, we want ballads. Mm. So Chicago was the ballad guys at that point in the game. And, you know, very rare for them to have a, a song after that that wasn't a, a ballad-oriented tune or at least mid-tempo ballady kind of oriented song. And, you know, sometimes you're you're a, the prisoner of your own success in a lot of ways. It's just the way it goes, you know? Right. In 97, you revived the Sons of Champlin and play with them in between tours with Chicago it had been 20 years since you guys were split apart. How'd you get everybody back together? Uh, you know, it was really funny because it was, I got a call from Rita Gentry who, who worked for Bill Graham presents when Bill was, I think maybe Bill might've been gone. I'm not even sure, but uh, she said, you got to put the sons back together again for a handful of gigs. We'll get you at the Fillmore for a couple of nights. We'll make it happen. And I thought, well, okay, we can make, we can do another gig at Santa Cruz. We actually play our first gig. We actually played in, uh, at what was called Billboard Live on Sunset Strip. It's now called the Key Club, I think is what it's called. But a nice venue, it was all, and a joint was packed. You know, Prince was at that gig. I didn't find out until two years later, they had a little like special VIP room that he owned. And he was just, he was there, you know, I, I met the guy who was kind of 
the security guy in the room with him and the guy said he was jumping around like crazy. I loved you guys. It was amazing. He didn't come down and say anything because that's just not his way or it wasn't his way at the time. But uh, it was kind of cool to, to see somebody that big who'd, been, who'd paid attention during his upbringing and saw, hey, here's something going on. This happening. In 88, you sang the theme song of the TV show In the Heat of the Night. And then in 1990, you wrote, produced, and sang lead on Hearts in Trouble for the movie Days of Thunder. Mm-hmm. This was your song, but it seemed like it was released by Chicago. Is that not correct? Yeah, it was. I mean, they wanted, uh, uh, Bruckheimer and Simpson wanted the song in the movie. Okay. But they wanted a bigger name than who the hell is Bill Champlin? You know, I mean, outside of Chicago, nobody knew who I was. And, uh, and, Dennis McCoskey, who co-wrote the song with me, uh, he he kind of he he went, hey, listen, uh, let's if we can get Chicago to do this. So really, basically, what we did is we put had Chicago put some horns on it at my house in my studio. They knocked off some horns on it, just the horn section, and uh, hey, I played harp on that thing. If you if you can believe that, <laughs> my two harp licks, and uh, and then uh, uh, we had Jason do some some like fretless little bass bass moves and uh it just ended up being really kind of a cool thing we, we missed a we missed a really big record right there uh because i think that tom cruise held back the video because he wanted a little more kissy face with nicole who he just the first movie they did together and uh so that holding that video back kind of held back the release date and uh uh i think uh the, the, the Bon Jovi had a tune called uh, whatever it was called. It was a very similar kind of song, kind of a swampy thing. And they just, they just hit the radio before we did beat us to it, beat us to the punch. And uh, I was like, wow, it's just another one of those great timing moves. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Missed it by that much. You, know? <laughs> you departed the band Chicago in 2009 to go back into your solo career. Yeah. And looking back, you said you were thinking about giving it five years. You ended up with 28. Looking back on your time with Chicago, do you have any regrets about it? Well, you know, I gave up a good portion of my life mm-hmm. for a band that is doing everything they can to erase me from history, from their own history. So it's, you know, you know, I, I guess no good deed kind of goes unpunished at some level, but it just ended up being... Uh, uh, just ended up being, you know, I've, if I have regrets, it's because of the years that I gave up. I mean, when Look Away came out, uh, one of my ma- my manager, it wasn't my manager at the time, but he still, John Barrett still called me to his office. I had a different manager at the time, Bill Thompson from San Francisco. And it, that wasn't really working that well. And John called and said, Bill, you got a number one hit. I can get you a solo deal tomorrow. And I went, I can't really leave these guys at this point. This looks like it's going to kind of put them back on the map. If I bail, it's going to, it's going to pull all the momentum to get to this point out from under. I said, I'm not that happy with the band, but I, I, I played, I did loyal guy. And, it's, and I look back on that as like, that was a real choice moment. You, you know, you, I made a choice and I made the choice to be a loyal band guy. You know, they, you know, they'd made some money for me over the years and, and they work all the time. You know, there's a lot of different kinds of projects. Their project is that they just never get off the road. They work all the time. Or in those days, they, they work, didn't work that much, but they worked. You know, I mean, every once in a while you get a month off. It doesn't happen anymore. 
the last 10 years I was in that band, it was, you know, hey, I need to take a vacation. Well, we just booked some gigs over it. You'll have to cancel your plane tickets. You know? And I never really had a chance to, to do anything but just that over and over and over again. So I was really obviously getting more and more unhappy with the way that was going. So uh, things just ended up it was probably better for them and better for me for me to bail out. Mm-hmm. They, they made sure I did. <laughs> it's just it's just my opinion, Bill, but if Bill Champlin is not in Chicago, Chicago is not what Chicago was because there's no David Foster. Chicago there's 16, people, Chicago you know, 16 doesn't become platinum. All those hits don't, aren't there. Yeah. Well, you know, everybody's, everybody thinks David Foster put me into the band really the other way around in a, in a weird mm-hmm. sort of way. You know, uh, I got called and asked, what do you think of David Foster? I said, I think, I think he's stone cold in your face genius and to not use him because of some non-genius uh issues is crazy it's nuts you know so they you know it was a good move everything like that but a lot of people who, who when i did get in the band they were going chicago with bill champlin in it ain't what the chicago is supposed to be you know some of the people we were playing for in chicago 16 they thought it was our first album you know, some of the younger crowds. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say they, they really, I mean, the, especially the horn guys, they really, really liked their early stuff. And they don't, they didn't, I mean, they, they did a remaster of, uh, of the David Foster stuff and put it out on Warner brothers. And in the liner notes, they said, we hate what David Foster did to us. <laughs> what? You know, putting out, it's like putting on motor oil and say, put this in your car. <laughs> your engine's going to blow. You know I mean? <laughs> Who's going to buy that? You know what I mean? David Foster inflated a lot of bank accounts. (laughs) Yeah, I'm telling you. (laughs) Bill, when I say the name George Hawkins Jr., what does that mean to you in your music? One of the best bass players and co-writers and friends any of us have ever had. George has just had a deepest pocket as a player. My last, my solo album before Living for Love, which was called No Place Left to Fall, George Hawkins, Bruce Geich, and I, Wrote probably half the record. You know, is George? I, just, I miss him so much. It's just crazy. And I've never, I was never in a band with him. But if I had any recording to do, my first call was George, and and he came. You know, he played on uh, uh, on the first the album I did with uh, with Greg Matheson called "Burn Down the Night." It was George and Tris all the way, and those two guys played on Kenny Loggins' first handful of records. You know, it was mm-hmm. a great, great bass player, great musician, one of the funniest human beings on the earth. It was just, it was always just a pleasure to work with George. Good singer, good writer. I mean, talk to me, just a bad boy. And uh, I, I just, you know, regret that, that just because mostly financial and they had a handful of kids. So he needed to take the gig with the money and not take the gig that he wanted, which was with me, you know, because I couldn't guarantee anybody, you know, any money at that level other than, Hey, we'll do a gig and everybody will get a little bit, you know, enough to pay for the gas to get to the gig. And, and that's just sort of, you know, I, I, my career and sons and so on never really got over the hump, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but I, you know, that hump didn't include musicians, musicians worldwide were becoming aware of what I was doing and what uh, the sons did and what, you know, still what I'm doing and I'm still doing it. And people go, oh, how can you be saying at this age, you know, especially with all the, you know, physical problems you had and I had cancer a couple of years back and uh, I got a pacemaker. I mean, I'm the $6 million man. 
In January of 2021, you put out Living for Love, released by Imagine Records. It was your first solo LP in 10 years. Yeah, and that picture behind me is, is the cover. Is the cover, which is fantastic. Yeah, wrote, we wrote stuff on it, and it's a Vladimir Kush painting. We we talked to to his people and talked to Vladimir, and uh, and he licensed that licensed that to us to use for an album. That is awesome. We're walking. Walk, I, mean, I knew his work already. And we were walking through, uh, walking through Vegas and we were just wait, you know, killing time while we were waiting for a, a, a reservation to come, come up right at a restaurant. And there was a Kush gallery. So we was looking at it. Tamara says, Bill, I just saw your album. Cover. And there was a guy, they closed it, but there was a guy still inside. So he came open the door and showed it to us. And we just went, Oh yeah, that's the one that's, that's what we want right there. So we not only bought the print, you know, and really high quality print. Uh, we, you know, we license it and use it, use it for the album cover. Listeners, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to living for love. Bill, what does the music reflect for you in this album? Well, in this album, I've read somewhere that if it isn't personal, it isn't art, you know? And although most of the times I don't, the word art to me, a lot of times is a little Hollywood. I, I'm an artist. No, I'm a craftsman. And I think some of the best art comes from somebody doing their craft and enough to where their chops are up and doing their craft. And suddenly something takes over and throws you a great lyric or a great progression or something really cool. And that's when it, when craft turns into art, you look at, you look at a lot of art that survived over the, you know, millennia. And, uh, and you see that it was some guy that wrote, drew something on the outside of a, of a big giant, you know, jar that he kept his rice in, but the art on it was is hung in forever. So, and he was just doing his craft. And while he had, I'll make this pretty boom. There you go. So that's kind of where I was at with the album. I, I just, I just gone through a year of fooling with cancer, which was a drag, you know, I had uh, prostate cancer, very aggressive, nasty stuff. So surgery and still there radiation and chemo. I mean, it was a hard year and that I was diagnosed on a Monday, it was actually September 12th. I remember that because it was my sister's birthday. And the next morning, my older son, Brad, died of esophageal cancer. So I had a, I had a sick year, bad, bad year. And, uh, and, and I pulled out of it. Thanks to Tamara. She probably saved my life, keeping me laughing, you know, because it's pretty easy to say, oh, it's that bad. Well, fuck it. I'm done. <laughs> let it hit, let it go. You know, and I, you know, that in some ways would have been my, my reaction to it. But I went, yeah, I got more to say. I don't, I'm not really afraid of dying. I just don't want it, you know? So that was kind of where I was at with the year. It was a really nutty year and a lot of music, a lot of lyrics. I, I just kind of came out a little differently. You know, mm -hmm. things just started to change for me. I think a lot of it probably has to do with age other than any, anything else. Plus, I had enough time. You know, everybody said, what are you making records for? You can't make any money on them. Not now. There's no deal. There's no there's no commerce, per se. You know, you've seen us. You've seen a retail record store lately. You know what I mean? It's just it's everybody. If somebody wants to hear your music, they don't have to pay a cent. They can just get it. Yeah. Know? And then we got all the Spotify and Pandora games. And we, I don't That's another lunch. You know yeah, what I mean? Right. Uh, so, uh, and I just kind of, you know, I, I'd been working. It took me two years to write a song about my son's, you know, passing. And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of country songs, you know, somebody dies and, just, oh, they were an angel when they were alive. Well, this isn't the case 99% of the time. And so I had to write that song. I had to make it real. So, uh, and, and that one, you know, and people know the story. That one gets people 
definitely go, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> there's, some, there's some pretty deep stuff in there. And the fact that I came close to, I was really looking at the end there for a minute. And I, you know, so I wrote a few, wrote a few things. And then I, I, I had not worked with Greg Matheson for a long time. And I, you know, and so I did three songs with Greg and that was just through the roof. Right. And then the, there was uh, Bruce Geich is a dear friend of mine who's written a lot of stuff with us, sent, sent me a track. And I played the track even through my blown speakers on my laptop, played the track. Tamara said, give me that. <laughs> I said, no, we're going to get, we're going to do that. One, you know? And, and I just went, I think that's, you know, it was an older track that, that Bruce had in his, uh, in his uh, Pro Tools, in a Pro Tools photo. I said, what do you think of this? And I heard it. I just went, oh, my God, we're writing that. And, uh, and I, you know, and I realized, oh, man, I was almost in tears. I was going, we got another George song. So George was on bass on it. And George had passed away a couple of years before. And, uh, and then I called Bruce or I texted Bruce. I said, who's on drums? He said, Vinnie Caliuda. <laughs> I went, holy shit, we're talking business. And, and the record, that song, you know, ended up opening the album. It was great. Uh, uh, what's it called? I forgot what it's called. CRS. CRS. <laughs> reason, reason to believe. It's a really cool tune. Great tune. Bill, with everything you've done, is there a musician that you haven't worked with that you would like to or you did not get a chance to? Stevie Wonder. You know. Uh, you know I mean, I was not the guy that was just doing nothing but listening to just Stevie. Any more than I was a guy who was listening to just Jimi Hendrix or... You know, I, 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 and I always listened to him and just went, whoa, here's a singing fool. And then he started to really write some really uplifting, great stuff. And, uh, and I just kind of, over a period of maybe three or four albums, he was tearing it up, you know. And the whole world, he was just like, he kind of owned the Grammys for three or four years there. And, uh, and you know, I looked to him as being a, as having been a, a an amazingly great artist, and I think still is. He's monstrous. He's been a little sick last year or so, but I, from what I understand from people who know him, he's he's kind of on the mend and coming back a little, you know, which is good. I mean, hey, we're, none of us are getting younger, let's put it that way. <laughs> when people say the name Bill Champlin, what do you want them to think of first? I don't know. Just, you know, somebody said, Hey, you like, you like playing guitar or keyboard better or, or singing. And I went, look, it's all one thing. It's all the same down to putting strings on the guitar. That's not my favorite thing to do, but it's part of what you do. It's part of the craft. And, uh, and I, I just, to, to be seen, a lot of guys want to be seen as rock stars. I know a lot of rock stars don't particularly like many of them because they're just, it's just all about, uh, I want to get in front of people. I'm applause freaks. And to me, the, the payoff for me is the music sounded good. So, I mean, when I finished a song and mix it and listen to it back, cranking through the speakers, I'm just going, all right, you've done your thing. You've followed this up to where it's supposed to be. After that, I'm not so good at it. I'm not the world's most insane uh, personal, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, promotion. I, I try to avoid the, the self-promotion thing. Although everybody has to do it. You have no choice. Mm -hmm. I don't have a record company doing it for me. If you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, a, a lot of that good stuff, but I have kind of, kind of have friends and people that take care of the social media and all the rest of that kind of stuff for the most part. I, I really want to keep focused on music right now. I'm uh, we're working on an album for my wife. It's going to scare the pants off on everybody. <laughs> She's such a good singer and the vocals on, on the four or five songs I've been working on lately. Oh, forget about it. She's bad as bum. So it's really cool. And she deserves another 
album at this point of the game. So uh, I'm doing everything I can to really bring one in for it. She's great. Listeners, go to BillChamplin.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Before we yeah. sign off here, Bill, I just want to say it's been an honor talking to you. I want to thank you thank for you. what you've done in the music industry. If we take Bill Champlin out of music, a lot of hit tunes that people and our listeners have heard of would have never heard of ever before. So thank you for everything you've done in the music industry. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming on the show. Show enough. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, if you would... Do me a favor and follow us anywhere podcast or, or found and rate and review the show. Five stars. Nice comments are always appreciated. Follow me on Instagram at before the lights podcast. Thank you for listening to before the lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everyone, a salute, a chin chin.